You are listening to the Women of the Military podcast, where we share the stories of female service members and how the military touched their lives. I'm your host, military veteran, military spouse, and mom, Amanda Huffman. My goal is to find the heart of the story and uncover issues women face while serving in the military. If you want to be encouraged by the stories of military women and be inspired to change the world, keep tuned for this latest episode of Women of the Military. My guest today is Jasmine Hurley. Jasmine graduated from West Point in 2005. She commissioned and her first assignment was in Germany as a military police officer. She deployed to Iraq in 2008 and in 2010 she headed to Fort Riley, Kansas and it's there she completed her military career in 2011. Today she is an attorney in Columbus, Ohio. Thanks for taking time out of your day so we can hear part of your military story. Welcome. Thanks Amanda. Thanks for having me. My first question is going to be, why did you decide to join the military? I joined the military because I, my life has been one of being brought up to, to provide service. So my family comes from a long line of, of those who served. My grandfather and uncles were in the Navy. My mother, father, stepfather, stepbrother, my younger brothers and I, all, all in, the, in the Army. So it was kind of the thing that we do in our family just to provide this service and to serve something uh, larger than ourselves. That's something my parents always stressed was, you know, serve something larger than yourself. Did your family have a military history of attending the academies? Is that how you ended up at West Point or? No, actually I was the first next to my stepbrother. I was the first, we were the first officers in the family. Everyone else was enlisted and I am as of right now, the only one to have attended a service academy. My parents were enlisted and when I broke the news to them that I was going to attend West Point, that was my goal. They said, are you sure about that? I said, oh yeah, I saw the Army-Navy game. It was fantastic. I wanna go, you know, I wanna go uh, where, where that's happening. I had a, an algebra teacher in high school who was a graduate and he was very, very helpful in, you know, just answering my questions, providing me a little bit of insight into academy life, particularly West Point life, and encouraging me to seek out more information. And he, he actually helped me get into, there's a summer program, it's called SEL right now, but it was called something different. But a summer program in between junior and senior years, so you can really experience what it's like at West Point and start the application process. That's really cool that you're able to find a mentor who was able to help you. I've talked to enough people, to, especially people who do officer type programs, who have someone who either shares about their experience or knows someone and can point them in the right direction. Because for me, I didn't even know, I mean, I have no military background, but I didn't know there was a difference between enlisted officer until a random friend like pointed me towards the ROTC program. But without him, I wouldn't have known that it existed. Right. And these are wonderful programs to be able to provide service and, and uh, achieve the goals that, that you also want to achieve. One of the other reasons why I was looking at West Point was not only fulfilling the military goal, but also fulfilling the goal of not actually having to pay for college. Um, I'm the eldest of five, and uh, by the time it came around for, for me to go, to go to college, there wasn't much in the college fund, and I said, you know what, you guys keep it. I, I found a way that I can pay for college myself. Yeah, it's really cool. So what was the process like if someone was looking at 
going to West Point. It's not like you just apply. There's more to it than that. Right. There is. So you need to make sure that you are uh, meeting the academic and leadership requirements in, in order to be considered a candidate. And then on top of that, you need to receive a nomination from your senator or congressperson. For me, because my family was in the military, I submitted my father's military records and I was able to receive a presidential appointment from the Secretary of the Army. They only give out a handful of those. I think about a hundred of those go out to folks that that number may have changed, but it's, but it's a small number of folks who are able to achieve nominations at at that point. You also have to pass the physical fitness standards. So it's a, it's a, a series of things that you you have to achieve. And most folks, you know, they, they go through the process and the, the issue is the nomination because there are only so many nominations that the senators and Congress, congressional folks give out. Right. Sounds like you were able to get a nomination at a pretty unique level. And then was it still a waiting game or was that nomination pretty much a sure thing that you would get to go to West Point? The timeline was fairly quick. So I um, I attended, uh, at the time it was called IAW, in between my junior and senior years. While I was there, I started the application process. I passed the physical fitness standards. And then from there, it was just a matter of completing paperwork, putting in transcripts. I had already taken the SAT and the ACT my junior year. Um, so I already had those scores. And so it was pretty quick. By the time I started my senior year, I had a conditional letter of acceptance, you know, conditioned upon me making it through my senior year, not, not slacking off too much and making it through my senior year. So I, I pretty much had, I was set my seat going into my senior year of high school, knowing exactly where I was going to go. And you graduated high school in 2001, so your freshman year of at West Point was September 11th, right? Yeah, yes, it was. We were about a month into it. I was walking to chemistry class, I guess, when the first tower was hit, and then the second tower was hit right as I sat down in chemistry class, and it started. Each of the, I don't know if they still do it anymore, but at that time, the TVs would be on, and it would be playing news, and it was playing news about the first tower being hit, and of course, the second tower got hit as, as we were sitting, sitting there and didn't really realize what was going on until after class. And it, it definitely makes an impact on the experience. I, I think I, I would definitely would have had a different mindset and a different experience at the academy if, if that hadn't happened. It, it definitely colors the, the, your, your thoughts and your, your expectations and you, just your plans in general. When you're young, you, you, everything seems to be a little bit open, open-ended, and maybe you don't really know what your purpose is. But when something like that happens, it provides you with some perspective and purpose. That makes a lot of sense. So like going to West Point, you kind of had a little bit of purpose because you're joining the military, but then September 11 happens and you're like, oh, this is why I'm here. And you kind of yeah. have that purpose mapped out to you. Yeah. And it, it was very... It was very interesting to have conversations with folks who, you know, graduated soon afterwards and, you know, ended up deploying and, you know, to Afghanistan and to Iraq in the first, you know, first couple of deployments, seeing their experiences and having conversations with them about what we're doing and when, you know, what our purpose is definitely really helped form my character and my, and my um, expectations and purpose. 
because it just changed everything about the military. So yes. No, it changed everything about our world when you think about it. I mean, the the way that we operate on a security level just in general, you know, before we could walk on the military bases, you know, with, with little to no paperwork and flying and, and everything. It, it just changed everything about what we, you know, what we do, how we operate as a country and um, operate as, an, as a military. More far-reaching than just the military, because yes, it affected so many people. Crazy. And it's crazy to think how long ago it happened, because it seems like for me, it feels like it was just yesterday that like everything changed, but. Right. And it blows my mind to think that we have been involved, you know, this, this uh, global war on terror for so long and how it's evolved and changed and the, the focus has, has shifted. So I, yeah, it, it does seem just like yesterday that I was 18. And then some days I'm very much reminded I'm not 18 anymore. Is there anything else from your time at West Point that you want people to know about? Yeah, one question I, I get a lot from folks is, was it hard? Of course it was hard. And it, I mean, for me, it was. I, I feel that there were maybe some people who went through where it was, you know, an easy time. But of course it was hard. It shaped who I am and shaped my character. We we had this joke whenever anything bad happened or, you know, you hit a you hit a wall, we're like, it's character building. It's character building. And it really was. I owe who I am today to that base, those cornerstones that were set while I was at West Point and solidified there to who I am and what I do now. It wasn't easy and I'm glad it wasn't easy. I'm glad that I, I had struggles. I am glad I had academic struggles. Um, I'm glad I had, you know, struggles with with friends. And while while I was my senior year, my stepdad passed away. You know, I'm while I miss him very very much. I'm I'm glad that that experience occurred in that space because, first of all, I had a, a great support system with the with the people around me. But second of all, you know that prepared me for, you know, being, being out in the, the uh, active army and dealing with situations where my own soldiers were dealing with those types of situations, being able to have that, that empathy and being able to, you know, figure out what resources they need to be able to be successful and be that support system for them. Plus, you can't beat the people, you know, the, the place changes, the academy changes, I feel like they're building something new every day. But the folks that I've met there are some of my best friends, you know, I, I know that I can turn to them at any time and, you know, we can pick up right where we left off. It, it's a great feeling to know that I have those, those types of folks. And I think that that applies to anybody in the military that, that, you know, that you've people that I've served with, you just have that, that indelible bond with them based off of your experiences that you've been through. You know, you can, no matter what happens, you can lean on them for, for some support or, you know, just a beer, that sort of thing. Right. Yeah, I saw someone post something on Facebook about how, like, all the military members give so much, but they don't get anything back. And I was like, um, no, we do. I mean, maybe it's not, like, in money or I'm not really sure what she expected that we should be getting, but I was like, the military gives you like friends, it changes who you are, like there's so many things that you learn and gain from your military experience that stays with you for the rest of your life, and 
I so I just thought it was interesting that she said that and that you were talking about it today about oh yeah it, it's that camaraderie that you you can't replicate that you know it, I I know it's one of the one of the things that uh, you know for myself transitioning out of the military and for folks that I I talk to my husband you know having that camaraderie and losing it when you transition out of the military can be devastating and I think that's that's one of the reasons why we have you know some of the issues with with soldiers who are you know leaving the military folks who are leaving the military because you don't have that community and camaraderie anymore it's difficult to find that on the civilian side a lot of the times i think that's why so many smaller veteran organizations are popping up because people miss that and they weren't finding it through like the vfw and like the american legion so now there's like a lot more smaller ones that I've started to get involved with and fill that sense of community that I kind of lost when I left. So how does it work when you graduate? How do you get selected for your job? So we have what's called branch night based off of our, we input our top choices and we had to rank all of the, at, at that point in 2005, I think, yeah, 2005. My memory gets a little bit fuzzy on date. We had to rank all of the branches, even if we were ineligible for those branches. So I think I put armor as my first one in some faint hope that maybe they would pick a woman for armor. And then I think I listed infantry, infantry the next one, and then military police. You know, mil- military police was obviously my first choice out of what was available to me. The summer prior, I had served for a couple weeks with a military police unit out of Fort Hood, Texas for a first. And I just loved it. I loved, you know, I just loved the temperament of the soldiers. I love the fact that both men and women were doing the same job. You know, everyone was treated as a soldier. It didn't matter your background. It didn't matter, you know, what your gender was, what your race was. You were a military police soldier. You were a military police officer. You had a mission to do. And you had to execute, and I, I just loved it, and I loved, I loved what we did. I loved, um, you know, I loved the the law enforcement aspect of it. You know, I always had a an inclination that I was going to be an attorney, and I thought, oh well, this this makes sense if have a little bit of a law enforcement experience, and then parlay that into a criminal legal career, which is funny because. I don't do criminal law at all, and you could not pay me to do criminal law at all after my experience in the Army, so it all works out for the best. So you mentioned a little bit, you said the jobs that were available, like you could put anything, but at the time in 2005, there were certain jobs that were off limits to Right, women. the combat, yeah, combat yeah. roles. And luckily today, that is not an issue for women who are at West Point. They can pick any job they want, and... You're, they're not discriminated by their sex. Right. right, not not by that, only by their class rank. So that's the, that's the other part of it was the uh, the class rank. So depending on your class rank, if you were high enough, you would get what you get what you picked. If you were not high enough, then you would be what was called force branched, which means you would go to needs of the army. So and I think they were doing something branch detailing. I'm not sure if it's if it's still being done, but you know, you, you would be branch detailed into, after a couple of serving a couple of years, you would, in the branch that you wanted, you would end up going to the needs of the army branch. Maybe I had that switched, but 
yeah, the, the, the process is now quite open. What you, what you put on your list could very well end up being where you go. So my game, if I, if I use that same game plan, I would be an armor officer right now. And because it was that off limits to women at the time. Oh yes. Armor, infantry. But I don't really know what armor is. So I was like, I don't oh, know. Armor is the tanks. Okay. It should be a matter of, can you do the job? Can you do the job physically? Can you do the job mentally? It should not matter what your gender is. It should, it should matter, can you do the job? Because there are plenty of folks who, just because they're a guy doesn't mean they can do the job. You know, so it, that, that should be the true, true test of, can you, can you hack the physical standards? Can you hack the, you know, hack the, the other standards that are necessary for completing that job? Being a military police officer was like the closest you could get to being armor or infantry, and that's kind of what drew you to it. Yes, someone someone joked that uh, it was the women's infantry because it was the closest you could get, um, which I part of me would laugh at that, but then the other part of me would be like, that's, that's kind of offensive. We're, we're much smarter than the infantry. Not knocking the infantry. The infantry's infantry's great. My my baby brother is in the infantry, but that was that was kind of the the joke behind it. So what did you do when you went on active duty as a military police officer? So my first assignment was in Hanau, Germany. I was assigned to the 92nd Military Police Company. Uh, they were headquartered out of Baumholder, but I was two hours away in Hanau as a platoon leader. So I had the unique experience of kind of running my own little show within reason as a platoon leader. So you know, my platoon sergeant and I making sure that our soldiers, you know, provided law enforcement for the couple of concerns that were in the Hanau community. Planned training, conducted training. Uh, at, at some point, I, about once a month, I would be the duty officer for a 24-hour period. So I'd ride along with my soldiers and we'd respond to any issues. Saturday nights were preferable because, you know, Saturday nights and people go drinking, but I don't know, maybe they always knew that I was on, I was on duty and nobody ever really got in trouble. It was, it was always really quiet. Whenever you were. <laughs> Unless they weren't telling me that things were going on, but I mean, I, it, it was a fairly quiet community. We really didn't have a lot of things going on because a lot of the units were deploying and redeploying at that time. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about your deployment to Iraq. Where yeah. in Iraq were you deployed to? We were deployed to Fob Kalzu, which was south of Baghdad along MSR Tampa. If anyone's been to Kalzu, fun times. I was, uh, I'd actually deployed as a, uh, as a platoon leader uh, to replace another platoon leader for the two 30th MP company, 3230. And so I was a senior lieutenant at that time. And I, I actually pinned captain while I was platoon leader down there. And we worked with the Iraqi police um, and the Iraqi highway police in the area to, you know, patrol. We provided them with training. We worked closely with them to, uh, you know, just make sure we were keeping the, uh, keeping the rule of law, keeping everyone safe. We were very, very fortunate in my platoon that we, you know, we showed up with and, and left with the same amount of folks 
the company overall was not as lucky. We, we had some folks, unfortunately, injured, but you know, we, we did our job and we were happy to be there. It was a very unique experience deploying, especially as a, a woman who was in charge of the platoon, not so much on the side of my soldiers, but on the side of working with the Iraqi police because the society is very male dominated. So when I would come in and the Iraqi police chiefs would might ask for something like additional supplies, HESCO barriers, those sorts of things, they would ask me and my answer would be, no, we don't supply those anymore. However, you know, we'll work with you to figure out how to get that from, you know, through the right channels. Well, the next day I may be with a, you know, with a different platoon, they would ask the, or a different squad rather, they would ask the squad leader, the male squad leader, by the way, the exact same question, hoping that they would get a different answer. And I had some fantastic leaders in my platoon who would say, no, platoon leader told you yesterday, no, <laughs> you know, and they, they would just repeat what I said and, you know, just making sure that, that we were all consistent. I had some, some fantastic leaders that were supportive and we all tried to support each other who really knew their jobs with me coming in later. I did not train with any of those folks. I didn't have nearly the extensive amount of training that they had together. I think I did a one week train up, one or two week train up to be prepared to deploy. You know, I didn't have that same rapport with any of the soldiers, but they were open and receptive to me asking questions, being respectful when I might've been out of line, letting me know why my decisions may or may not have been correct. And I, I truly respect that. I think next to West Point, deploying was the next formative part of my military career that set those next, you know, those, those next set of, of building blocks in my life. Yeah, it sounds like you had a unique experience because you were out dealing with the Iraqi people and not just sitting on the base. So it kind of gives you a different perspective when you go and you actually meet with the locals instead of being, not that being on a base is bad because that's important too. It's just a different right. perspective. And a lot of people, a lot of people who deploy don't get to leave the base, even if they want to, like they're not allowed to. Right. Well, the thing about deployment, and I, th I think women do this a lot, is they, they say, well, I didn't, I didn't do anything when I deployed. And even, even I said that for a long time was, well, I didn't do anything when I deployed. That's not true. You know, when you're deployed, you're deployed for a reason. You are, you have a particular job that you need to execute while you are there. And just because you didn't leave the base did not leave you, you weren't safe. You know, a lot of these bases, especially Fob Calzu, you know, we were rocketed pretty frequently <laughs> to the point where by the time I was ready to leave and ready to redeploy, when we would get rocketed, I was like, eh, we're getting rocketed again. You know, I'd hit that level of complacency about what was going on. It was dangerous. We were getting hit with indirect fire landing right near where we slept. I encourage, you know, those folks who say, well, I didn't, I didn't do anything to, you know, remember you had a job while you were there, whether it was inside the wire or outside the wire. And nine times out of 10, you were still in danger because someone was trying to hurt you in any way possible. 
Well, you talked a little bit about what you did. What was your team's mission? Like, why were you guys meeting with the local Iraqis while you were in Iraq? Our mission and our purpose was to make sure that we were uh, empowering the Iraqi police to enforce the rule of law, making sure that, you know, they were rebuilding, they were supported, they were, they were executing, and that they were trained. A lot, of the, a lot of the folks were fairly new. There was a little bit of a turnover for the police. So we were just making sure that they, we were supporting them. Um, we were empowering them to do their job and just making things safe a lot of the times. The Iraqi Highway Police, we partnered with them later in our deployment. I mean, all they really did was patrol up and down the main service route, MSR Tampa. Well, as they're patrolling, they're making sure that, you know, the roadway is clear for not only our forces, but their own folks. They're watching out for those folks who are, you know, trying to set the IEDs and, you know, trying to harm their own folks because, you know, they, they want their own country to be safe also. And those are the conversations that we would have, you know, the reason why we were there. We, we framed it, look, we're not, we're not here to be, a, you know, an occupational force. We're not here to be, you know, to be jerks. We're here to make sure that you're supported, that we're helping you do your job. And, you know, if we know that you're supported and you're okay doing your job, that means we can go home too. So that, that was just the way that we, we communicated with them and everyone was, was helpful. We hope that the reason why we were okay and that we were able to return home safely was because of that relationship that we built with our partners. Yeah, that makes sense. So you were there kind of as like the beginning of the drawdown when... Yes. So the unit I deployed with, so the 230th was part of the surge. And then the end of the deployment was the beginning of the discussions for the status of forces agreement. So by the end of the deployment, we cut down the amount of time we were spending outside of the wire significantly because we were looking at this transition. So you were kind of there at the very end of the surge and as it was starting to shift from the surge to the drawdown. Yep, 2008-2009. You talked a little bit about like having some issues with some of the Iraqi leaders asking the squad leaders after they had already gotten the answer they didn't want, but did you face any other challenges while you were deployed? I think just being away from home, I think that's a general, you know, and I, I was already away from home in the sense of I was, you know, I was stationed in Germany, but being away from those things that and the, those folks that were that support system and trying to figure out what the support system while deployed looked like. That was, that was a little bit, little bit difficult and, you know, just dealing with general relationship stuff. It's always difficult when, when you, you know, you're in a relationship and you're dealing with, with that. We were both deployed at the time. So, you know, you're, you're trying to deal with that. And that was, that was also an experience you know, trying, trying to deal with that and, and, you know, keep a, a positive attitude, especially in front of my soldiers. Like, yeah, everything's, everything's going great, even though you know, we're deployed. This is fantastic. That's life in general. You know, you deal, you deal with those things, deal with those things all the time, whether you're, you know, whether you're deployed or not. So you just mentioned your husband, was he your husband at the time or were you guys dating? No. 
No, um, we, we did not start dating until later. So um, this was a, an, another relationship that had carried over from my time at West Point. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I met my husband around the same time and we got married in 2011. He was in the military also. So, and he, he left just recently and left active duty in 2017. So it was very interesting with me transitioning out and then helping to guide him as he transitioned out of the military, dealing with a lot of the same feelings of the loss of camaraderie and what am I going to do and who am I, (laughs) you know? That's one of the things that I'm like acutely aware of as I've like gone through the transition process is that my husband's going to leave the military one day and I can help him because I've learned so much by going through it and it's interesting that you're able to help him in that way. So that's speaking of transitioning, why did you decide to get out of the military? I thought that I was going to be in the army for 20 years, retire you know, highest rank possible, but really as I, as I progressed through the military and especially in my time when I was deployed, I realized that I wanted to do something different with my life. I wasn't sure what it was at that time, but I knew I wanted to do something different. So I I made the decision when I was deployed, I said, okay, I'll give it one more year. You know, I, I still had time after I redeployed I I had a service obligation. So for service academy grads, it's five years active duty, three years in active ready reserve, or you can do the full eight years active duty. I said, you know, I'll I'll go for one more year. If this isn't working, then I will put my paperwork in to leave at the, you know, at, at the end of my service obligation. If it is working, I'll give it another year and then we'll go from there. I was at Fort Leonard, Missouri in the captain's career course. And I, I just still felt that, com- that compulsion that I needed to do something different. Again, I didn't know what it was at the time. So by the time I transitioned out of the military in 2011, I mean, I wasn't looking for a specific job leaving the military. I was just looking for a job that, you know, something that would use the skills that I had in the military and be able to get me something that pays me. I wish that I had taken a little bit more time to sit down and consider going back to school. At that, at that time, I didn't think law school was attainable for me. I didn't do very well in any of my law classes when I was at West Point. So I, I thought maybe that was, you know, a bridge too far. But I'm glad I took the path that I did. I'm, I'm glad that I, I gave myself that time. I made that promise, you know, to, to look at everything year by year. And I'm happy that I, I left the military. I feel like I, it was time for me to leave. You're, you knew that it was time. And then I think the transition process always has its ups and downs and you learn from it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and those are things that I, I try to, you know, when my husband was transitioning, I tried to talk to him about, you know, like, hey, here's how I felt. Here's, here's some of the things that I was looking at. You know, here, here were some of the red flags that I've seen in the workplaces that I've, I've been in over the past couple of years that you should probably double check with. With me being an attorney, I mean, he automatically, any paperwork he gets, he automatically turns around and makes me read it <laughs> and give him, you know, give him, give him insight into, you know, what I see that, and, you know, issue spotting and things like that. So it must be nice having me as, as, a, as a spouse. <laughs> 
he obviously trusts you and knows that you're that you're good at what you do so he can just be like I don't have to work. that's kind of like my husband's good at computer stuff so right we like how do you I'm like I don't know I have a husband that's yeah he, that's what he, he does, does <laughs> we, we have our strengths yeah well he also knows I I like it I'm I'm a nerd in that way right. so I'm like, oh, yes please let me read this contract and my last question is gonna be what would you tell girls who are considering joining the military? And I'd really love to like shape it a little bit more towards girls considering going to West Point since that's Yeah. Well, first things first, do your research. At that time, so 2000, 2001, West Point did have a website. I think they, they just revamped their website. Do the research, figure out if it's something that's right for you. Um, West Point has what's called a field force. Those are folks who are alumni, who are, you know, here to help as um, folks put together their packets, as they put together their application materials to answer questions. Um, contact the admissions officer that is in charge of your area here in Ohio. It's the Great Lakes region, which I believe it is Captain Rogers. And the admissions officer will be able to point you to those folks in your district that can answer your questions if there are any service academy nights, so the, especially here in Ohio, Senator Brown and Senator Portman put on discussions with, with parents and, and potential candidates about the process of achieving and applying for and, and receiving a nomination. And usually at those, I, I can say for the West Point side, field force officers are there to answer your questions that you can talk to. If you are considering West Point in particular, like I said, do your research, check out the Air Force Academy, check out the Coast Guard Academy. I'll even dare say, check out the Naval Academy. It, it doesn't hurt to, to understand. They do allow for visits. I, I don't know if any of the academy, other academies do the summer I'm not going to call it a summer camp because there's nothing camp about it. <laughs> but if they do something similar to the leadership course, see if you can attend that. I mean, for me, that was the final nail in the coffin on going to the service academy was attending the IAW and meeting the folks and just getting a taste of what life would be like at West Point and just ask questions. And if anybody has questions and they hear this, call me. I'll, I'll, or, you know, get in touch with me over LinkedIn or whatever, and I'll help you find somebody that, that you can talk to, or you can ask me questions, questions about it. And we can, we can get you the information that you need to be able to figure out if this is what you want to do. And if it's not something you want to do, then that's okay too. That is really good advice. And I will definitely put your LinkedIn profile in the show notes so that if people want to get in contact with you, they can find you easily. I haven't interviewed a West Point graduate, but I've done a few interviews with people who have West Point connections. So I'll put those episodes in the show notes so that if people want more information or different perspectives, they'll have that available. And I'm just going to throw a plug for ROTC because you didn't mention it when you said your <laughs> research. But sometimes the military academies can feel a little bit overwhelming. And right. you can, ROTC is another way, and OTS. There's a lot of different paths that you can take if you want to become an officer in the military. So yeah, do your research and do your research. Yeah. Figure it out. At the end of the day, and this is what I tell a lot of folks is it's your life. 
it is your path and your path may look like someone else's, but it doesn't have to, you know, you may have those similarities, but your path is your path. Your life is your life. You need to follow your path and follow your own purpose and destiny. And if it's ROTC, if it's West Point, if it's the Naval Academy, if it's not the military at all, but you, you know, you, you providing some other types of service, there are different ways to serve our community and serve the greater, you know, the, the greater entity that is, you know, the United States of America, um, not to get too, too patriotic and break out into song, but we are who we are as a country because of all the people that make up our country. You know, and those of us who stand up and want to provide that service to those folks, I mean, that's that's commendable, whether it's in the military or in your communities. So figure out what you want to do and chart that path. Thank you so much for being a guest. I've loved hearing about your experience and I learned so much, which is not uncommon when I do these interviews. So thank you for sharing your experience and for being on the podcast. Thank you, man. I, I love what you're doing. I love hearing all the other stories of women who have raised their hand and served through, throughout the generations, and you're doing a wonderful thing. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Women of the Military. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any of the amazing stories I have with women who have served in our military. Did you love the show? Don't forget to leave a review. Finally, if you are a woman who has served or is currently serving in the military, please email me at airmantomom at gmail.com so I can set you up to be on a future episode of Women of the Military.